Okay, good morning, everybody, and welcome to this week's virtual plant clinic. My name is Bill Lester. I'm with University of Florida IFAS Extension Service here in Hernando County. And with me today is my regular co-host, Lily Browning, our Florida-friendly landscape coordinator, is it? Program coordinator. You were pretty close, yes. Okay, program coordinator. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And today we got a special guest star in here with us. Mike also works for Hernando County, and he is the director or coordinator. <laughs> it's, yeah, director would be a really nice way to say it, but uh, <laughs> yeah, my my official title is conservation lands specialist. Oh, you're a specialist. That sounds even better than coordinator. Yeah, it's it's a pay grade below, I think. So we're yeah, working on yeah. that. <laughs> Well, Mike Singer is here in Hernando County, and he is in charge of the uh, Environmentally Sensitive Lands Program. Yes, so sir. he's going to tell us all about that today. But first, we got a couple people on here this morning. Buddy is here. Good morning, Buddy. Buddy is one of our regular viewers, and he is from up in Tallahassee? Yes. Up in the Panhandle. So. Yeah. Bill never remembers that Tallahassee. <laughs> no, no, no. I know, I know Panhandle. Yeah. And, but it's Tallahassee. It's either Tallahassee or Pensacola, so it's Tallahassee. It's Tallahassee, yes. Okay, Mike, why don't you tell everybody pretty much what you do as the uh, specialist for the environmentally sensitive lands? What are the environmentally sensitive lands? Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. Great. So, great question. Um, <clears throat> So the environmentally sensitive lands program is basically Hernando County's um, conservation lands. So most folks know of like the state conservation land that's here. We've, you know, we've got multiple state agencies. We've got the water management district, which is uh, also known as Swift Mud. We've got the Florida Forest Service, Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. Those are the, you know, the main players. And, and we've also got uh, DEP uh, with the state parks. <clears throat> So um, they've all got their conservation land and Hernando County has its own conservation land that they've purchased to um, preserve and to manage for, for conservation and for the resources that are there. So, um, so the program, the Environmentally Sensitive Lands Program began in 1988 and it was a uh, voter referendum where the citizens of the county voted to uh, have this program and they uh, also voted to collect a uh, um, you know a millage rate and taxes to fund the program so it's supposed to be a tenth of a mill for 30 years um, and then that, that money was to be for the acquisition and management of these properties deemed environmentally sensitive um, and and what does that mean was environmentally sensitive lands mean in, in terms of Hernando County. And that's, that's basically, um, you know, properties that have uh, rare or threatened or, or some sort of critical habitat. Okay. That's also um, areas of like water recharge or areas um, for water protection. So we've got one property, Peck Sink, which um, as the name indicates, it has a sinkhole on it. And the sinkhole is, it's not the sinkhole that you, you generally hear of opening beneath a road or sucking in a house, right? This is an open hole in the ground and all the water in the watershed around it or the basin all drains to that surface water. And it's a direct connection to the aquifer. So you can kind of see that that would be a, an important property you know, to, to protect and have some protections on because we don't want to contaminate our, our groundwater, which is our, our drinking water. So, um, you know, other factors, uh, for the, uh, the program, uh, you know, that would make a property eligible would be, you know, rare threatened or endangered species, um, that are only found on that property or some sort of cultural, um, you know, resource. So, um, you know, a couple of the properties have cultural resources. Pexink, for example, has, um, you know, some, some old, uh, 
you know, cultural right. resources on the site. Yeah, archaeological finds. Yeah, right. Ar ar yeah. Uh, Bayport. So mm -hmm. Bay Bayport is technically owned by, excuse me, by the water management district, um, but the county leases it for the, you know, additional boat parking and there's a small park there. Um, so that it, it has some cultural resources there as well, you know, archaeological stuff. Um, and then the one of the other programs uh, or properties within the program is actually Chinsigat Hill. Most, most folks don't know that. Um, and and that in itself is a, you know, kind of a cultural thing. It's, it's on the National Register of Historical Places. Um, the county doesn't actually own that property, but they have a long-term lease and we're responsible for the management of it. And, and my program specifically <clears throat> manages the, the, what you would consider the natural areas surrounding the house. So all the, the forested land around the manor house and the, the retreat. So um, if I could, Bill, uh, I'd like to share my screen. I've got um, just a map that shows the location of the properties in the um, in the program. So I'm assuming okay, that's sure, sure. Go ahead and give it a shot. Yeah, let's see here. I work for the county, and I didn't realize that you managed Chinsigat, um Hill. That that was one of your properties. So uh, let's see. It's a little tricky. You have to already have it up. Yeah, I do. So it's. Um, Blinking there. I don't know. There's, oh, it's still blinking. <laughs> yeah. That's not <laughs> safe. <laughs> Let's, uh, all right. Somebody a seizure with that one. Yeah, that's not. Let me, let me, I'm going to try one more time. I did see around the county where they were. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's, uh, hope that doesn't. Nah, still blinking. All right. So I'm sorry. That's okay. I don't, I don't think that's going to work. Um, but yeah, so, so we've got five main properties in the program. Um, we've got Fickett Hammock, which is um, kind of the, the Northwestern portion of the County. It's, it's basically forested hammock hardwoods there. Um, it's 155 acres. Yep. And then we've got Chinsiga Hill, which is kind of, just north of Brooksville, about five miles on US 41. That property is 112 acres, excuse me, 114. Um, and we've got Lake Townsend Preserve, which is 375 acres. And um, that's mostly overgrown sand hill. And what we're doing there is we're, we're working to restore the sand hill, but also um, one of the main objectives uh, in terms of habitat restoration on that property is to create a recipient site for gopher tortoises. So um, every time, you know, there's a, a project that the county does, you know, basically for infrastructure or something, and, it, and it's absolutely necessary to relocate a gopher tortoise from that project, um, you know, we're hoping to be able to get permitted by the state to, to relocate them to this property. Part of their requirement is having, um, you know, property that meets specific habitat criteria to be, to be able to do that. So that's a, you know, big ongoing project there. There's also a park um, at that property that's uh, operated by the Parks and Rec Department. And that entire property used to be specifically just uh, part of the Parks and Rec Department. Um, until uh, earlier in the, I don't know, mid 2000s, you know, kind of during the recession. Um, and we've got Cypress Lakes Preserve, which is in Ridge Manor. It's right along the Withacoochee River. And that is our um, most ecologically diverse property. It's 331 acres and there's like eight natural vegetative communities there. Um, one of which is, is uh, you know, Florida scrub, which is a, uh, Considered, I think, imperiled. Um, I don't know that it's considered endangered, but it certainly is. Is um, there's less and less of it every year due mm -hmm. to um, you know development uh, statewide. But scrub is only found in Florida, 
and it is uh, home to a handful of, of species which are only found in scrub. Uh, for example, the Florida scrub jay. Um, so while we do not currently have any scrub jays on the property, you know, we're, we're working hard to manage that scrub and get it back into optimum condition in, in the hopes that, you know, nearby populations in the Withcoochee State Forest might translocate there um, and, and establish their own territories. So that would be, that would be really significant if, if it did happen. Um, you know, uh, I was in a scrub jay working group, like a statewide scrub jay working group last week. And one of the things that um, came about from that, that meeting was just different scrub management techniques. And then um, somehow I found a resource from the 80s, right, mid 80s. And it talked about scrub jays being present in that, that vicinity of that preserve um, back then when that habitat wasn't so overgrown and, and so uh, developed uh, around it. So that's, that's pretty neat. And then the last of the, the five main properties, which I already briefly talked about, was Peck Sink um, Preserve, which, again, as the name indicates, has uh, an active sink on it. Um, the watershed around it is like 11,000 acres. So when we have any significant rain, um, you know, all the surface water goes there. And um, the uh, stormwater department they have um mm -hmm. like a uh stormwater basin like a series of basins there that uh, pull off trash and sediment and excess nutrients to help filter that um as protection you know um, before the water heads to the sink and then directly into the aquifer so um in total there's there's about 1100 1200 acres of property that i manage and um I'm the only one in my in my program, so uh, it's a it's a big big deal, a lot of work, a lot of projects always going on, juggling, um, you know, time and money and you know that sort of thing. Well, pretty much all of those, with the exception of Peck Sink, are open to the public, correct? That's correct. So that's that's uh, a great point. Um, one of the criteria for the properties within the program is public access. So Pexing does have public access, but it's by appointment only. So if folks wanted to go there, they would have to contact me. And, um, you know, Bill, maybe you can put a link to my information um, with, with the recording of this meeting. Um, so folks can contact me if, if they want uh, in the sure. future. What, what's your email? Singer. <clears throat> Yep. <laughs> msinger at hernandocounty.us. Yeah. Yeah, so folks can um, can email me and, and we can set up a time to go out there. But one of the projects that we have going on is to, to enable, you know, public access uh, at that property on a more regular basis um, where they don't need an appointment. So we've received a grant recently from the Florida Department of Environmental Protection and uh, it's through their recreational trails program. So it's a mouthful, but uh, the point is we, we've obtained some funding to improve the parking area, which is already there and existing, and then build an ADA accessible hiking trail from the parking area to the sink, and then an observation platform at the sink. Um, so folks can safely uh, view the, um, the sink and and see what's, you know, what's all there. And, you know, I don't know if any of the listeners out there um, or viewers have ever been to Devil's Mill Hopper in Gainesville, Florida, but it's it's very similar. It's just um, on a much smaller scale. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's pretty impressive, Devil's Mill Hoppers. And Pexink is as well. I mean, it's, I think it's about 50, 60 feet deep. Um, so that's pretty big and, and you know, maybe hundred yards across at the top. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty, pretty neat. Um, but to think something like that's, you know, just kind of right here in Hernando County, just outside of downtown is, is pretty cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You'd never think that it was back there tucked back in the woods. And yeah. I know that, you know, Lily and I, there, 
on hikes and you want to be very careful. You don't want to fall in the great big hole in the ground. So that's great that you were able to get grant money to, to add a boardwalk and hopefully it'll be more accessible to more of the public. Cause I know with your other properties, you have hiking trails and hiking opportunities. Mm-hmm. That's right. So at, um, at Peck Sink, excuse me, you know, we'll have, well, so Peck Sink will have this, this property soon. And then in, um, in Cypress Lakes, we've got a series of hiking trails there and actually a segment of the Florida National Scenic Trail runs through mm-hmm. Cypress Lakes, which is really cool. So for, um, that trail is a statewide trail and it runs from the Everglades all the way up to the, um, to the Panhandle and into, I think through into Georgia. Um, so that's, that's really cool. And it pretty much follows the Florida wildlife corridor. Um, and it's, it's primarily all through conservation land. So that's, that's really cool. So the segment of that trail that runs through the property is a mile and a half. Um, and then we've got, uh, about a 2.3 mile hiking loop at, um, Ficket hammock. Yeah, it is, but it feels like five. <laughs> it does. It does feel much longer than it is. And I, you know, it's kind of because it's really you're so, cool. yeah. you're so secluded out there. I mean, it's, and it's amazing because you're not far from, you know, a six lane highway, but right. you really, yeah, you know, you really feel, I had been to all of the other um, sites just, just from living here for so long. And then Mike guilted me into going over to Cypress Lakes because I hadn't been there yet. Mm-hmm. And I only did the um, part um, from Ridge Manor Boulevard back to the fire station. Yeah. And oh my gosh, in all my 43 years of living in Florida, never have seen cypress trees that big. And um, we did it in March. So we went through the really swampy section and it wasn't hot yet and the mosquitoes weren't out yet. Um, But I mean, I'm eager to go back in the fall. Um, (laughs) Yeah. it, I mean, I was expecting Yoda to come out of the swamp. <laughs> it, it, it was just really amazing there. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's, that's my favorite property because of um, the diversity. And it's, it's so cool to, to hike that trail and be down in the Cypress Dome and then walk the edge of it and then, you know, emerge out into like the kind of scrubby flatwoods and then border the scrub that's there. It's just, it's just really um, unique and and really neat. There's always lots of, um, like there's lots of birds, especially in the spring. Mm -hmm. We actually just did a prescribed burn out there um, on Monday and we were working on, on burning a portion of the scrub and um it was so dry which you need a little bit more um you know a little drier conditions and uh stronger winds than you would typically need for for a typical prescribed burn just to have the the fire carry and um we had to really kind of baby the fire along along the fire break until it backed off into the unit enough and was, was established, you know, to establish our baseline, um, before we could kind of really let her, let her rip through there. And just about the time we were ready to really, uh, get ignition, you know, really full blast this one little isolated thunderstorm (laughs) 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 developed right over us and and extinguished everything. (laughs) Since you brought that up, why don't you tell us why, why do they, um, what is the purpose of fire management in Florida's forests and ecological land? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's, um, a great thing to talk about too. So most folks, they don't know, um, or understand it's kind of counterintuitive to think fire is good, but, um, it really is. And, and, and a lot of Florida's ecosystems, um, ecosystems in the south 
yeast in general, <clears throat> they're, they're fire adapted, um, meaning they need fire to survive. Most of the plants, um, you know, once they burn, it doesn't kill them. It, it kind of helps them to regenerate. And a lot of them, they need that to, to even propagate seeds. Um, wiregrass, for example, is, you know, dominant, um, ground cover in a lot of, uh, you know, longleaf pine mm -hmm. ecosystems. And that one, it helps to carry the fire and, and two, um, it needs fire to, to germinate so it can produce seeds and, and, and keep on, um, you know, living in, in that ecosystem. Um, but also, uh, you know, other benefits of fire besides those that I just mentioned it, um, fire consumes, uh, you know, dead fuels or excessive fuels that could, you know, once, once they build up over years and years and years, um, you know, they, those could lead to damaging wildfires mm -hmm. if they ignited. Um, and, and prior to, I guess, you know, European settlement in, in the area, um, and a lot of habitat fragmentation and, and fire suppression, you know, fire is naturally occurring, um, on a very regular basis. You know, Florida is the lightning capital of the world. And, and generally most, um, fires were, were always started by, by lightning. And then they would just kind of carry this, you know, through the, through the landscape burning things. And, um, because they happened on a, basically like a yearly basis, you know, you, you never had so much fuel on the ground that it was a damaging fire mm -hmm. and there was nothing to stop it. There were no roads to stop it. There was no, um, you know, firefighters to come out and, and extinguish the flames. So it would just burn through the landscape and, um, you know, that fertilizes the ground, it, you know, creates excess or extra nutrients that are, that are essential for, for plants and all the new regrowth that comes. If anyone's ever seen, an area a couple of weeks after a prescribed yeah. burn. I mean, everything is just starting to grow back and it's very, very green and it's, it's, um, you know, nice and young tender mm -hmm. vegetation. That's, that's really actually necessary for a lot of animals. It's um, really cool. Cause you still see the charred look from the burned fires, but yet that, like you said, that new spring green is popping right. up everywhere. Yeah. Right. Yep. So as, as land managers, you know, we burn different times a year for different things. Um, you know, if we've got a, a super excess of fuels in, a, in an area that we're going to burn, we might burn in um, the dormant season, which would be the winter um, when things aren't as green and, um, you know, there's less uh, growing fuel or, or flashy fuels kind of to, um, you know, so we have a lower intensity fire, but in the growing season, um, you know, is when you get more desirable results in terms of ecological benefit. Um, you know, you get suppression of, of woody encroachment in areas where you shouldn't have like the shrubby woody plants. Um, uh, like wiregrass, for example, if you burn it in the winter, it's not going to, um, uh, you know, germinate and, and have those new seeds. Um, whereas if you do it in the summertime, it will. And then um, summer burns um, also, you know, you'll get a lot uh, more wildflowers that come back following that, with, you know, kind of based on the same, same principles. Um, but really cool, you know, really misunderstood. Um, so public education is a big thing. I know uh, everyone's familiar with Smokey the Bear. And yeah, yeah. Um, Smokey the Bear was so good at getting the message across that it was too good. So they used to say, I think only you can prevent forest fires. And they, at some point they changed it to only you can prevent wildfires. Um, because they wanted to dis differentiate between fires, good fires and bad fires. Right. So now the, you know, I guess the language that we use is, um, you know, 
good fire when, when you're doing a prescribed burn versus a bad fire would be a wildfire, one that's not intended to be there or one that um, could have damaging effects on, on um, you know, health or... Um, you're literally fighting fire with fire as well, too, because you are burning up all that excess uh, brush and debris and everything that would be fuel for a wildfire. So aside from that's what um, Florida's naturally a fire-maintained wilderness, but also you are um, getting rid of a lot of those biofuels or what it, you know that would feed a out-of-control forest fire. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I know a lot of people don't. It might seem a little counterintuitive to people who've just moved to Florida from up north that there's an actual art and science to starting forest fires. <laughs> and I know a lot of people um, aren't really big fans of it because if there's a controlled burn somewhere near their house, it might get a little smoky and you have ashes and people will complain. But I know years ago... Um, and it was um, probably 20 years ago at this point when we had the really big outbreak of um, forest fires during a drought, all the areas that hadn't been maintained and burned in a number of years caught fire from lightning and they had huge fires that were very destructive and burned down a lot of houses because it wasn't properly maintained on a regular basis and burned on a regular basis. So way too much fuel had built up and you had these you know, massive forest fires instead of the small controlled managed burns. Right. But, but this is not something your homeowner should go. No, no, no. Don't go out and manage the backyard this way. <laughs> right. Right. So um, Florida is a, uh, what they consider a right to burn state. So technically, um, you know, homeowners, I don't want to say just, you know, any person, but, but people can, people can burn their property, um, under Florida law. And, um, but if it gets away from you and you cause damage or loss to anybody else, you are fully responsible. Correct. Correct. Yes. You are, you are a hundred percent liable for that. Um, so the Florida forest service, who is, you know, the, um, uh, managing kind of top ranking agency on, on fire in the state, you know, they're the ones who, who authorize burn permits, you know, mm -hmm. they provide, um, training courses mm -hmm. for folks to, to learn the, the proper way to do it and to actually become certified. And when you're a certified burner, um, you actually, uh, have some protection under the law, um, through your burn, you know, through your burn you're certification. Saying, you're still referring to someone who lives on in the woods or on a lot of acreage. You're not referring to someone who lives in a deed restricted community. Yeah. Right. right, right, yeah. So this fire. would, yeah, be more for agri agricultural land. Right, um, right, right. Yes. Or folks who have, you know, have some land that they want to manage with fire. Probably, even though the state may allow it, probably your neighborhood has a restriction against. You know, you setting your yard on fire. Right, right, yeah. So very, very important distinction to make there. Yes. Um, yeah, and your yeah. homeowners association probably would take a really dim view. That yeah, absolutely. Well, there's a lot of communities that don't even allow like you know bonfires or trash burning or something. Yep. So um, it'd be that same under that same principle. Yeah, because you're a dense community and you know people don't don't want to deal with your your fires mm -hmm. so okay well hey guys if y'all have any questions please feel free to go ahead and put it in the chat i think uh, there was a question, one right question a little bit earlier so let me go ahead and answer this one yeah. real quick before i forget it and misplace it joseph one of our regular uh viewers asks is it too late to plant corn yes it is here in central florida um, they've already harvested it for the spring, right? Well, they're real close to it. Um, I know one of the uh, corn farmers had hoped he would have a crop available 
um, Friday and Saturday, um, but just put out a message on Facebook that nope, not not quite ready, not up to his standards, but we're real, real close to harvest time. Yeah, so spring corn is getting harvested right about now. You can try growing it in the fall, but you want to wait until I would guess middle of August at the earliest. And corn can be really tough for homeowners to grow. It has a lot of bug problems. You get a lot of corn earworms and a couple different species of caterpillars in it that are really difficult to control. But you can try it. They obviously grow corn here in Central Florida. We do have you pick corn farms. And I know down in South Florida earlier in the spring, they grow a huge amount of corn down there. I would just go to the corn farms and <laughs> let them do it. Sure, it's a whole lot easier that way. <laughs> I think there's at least two in our county. Um, one 98 North and one down off of Powell Road. And Leanna asks, how do you get your garden soil tested? And I know Leanna, I'm not sure if you live here in Hernando County or which yes. county you live in. It she does, knows? yes. Okay. If you live in Hernando County, just contact our office and I'll show the phone number in just a moment. You can come by the office and pick up a form and you fill out the form and you send it along with your soil sample, just a small sample, about a handful of soil in a paper bag to the soil testing lab up in Gainesville and they'll test it and send the results back to you and back to us also. You, so, might want to email, you might want to email her the link where you can find it online because she works about the same hours that you do. So. Okay. Well, if you call our office, uh, Teresa will answer the phone and she can help you out. Um, if you want to shoot me an email, I'll email you the link to the soil testing lab. You can download the order form online with all the directions and the information that you have to provide on it. It's really simple. And because we don't do the testing here in the county, we send it off to Gainesville. You could send it off directly to Gainesville just as easily. You really don't have to stop by the office for any of the information. Very important. You want to send your sample up in a paper bag, not a plastic baggie. Because if it's at all moist in a plastic baggie, it's going to get really funky and nasty. And that makes it harder to test. Paper bags breathe. So if you have a paper lunch bag, that'll work just fine to send your sample off. You have a low yeah. Oh my God, see everybody's, we're, we're, we're gonna have to save one of these questions for Mike. <laughs> so we got Kirby and Tiffany say, I have a low quad tree that's about three feet tall. So it's just a little one. There's something nibbling on the leaves and brown spots on the underside of the lower leaves. I don't want to lose it, and they're in Pinellas County around Madeira Beach. So for anything that's nibbling on the leaves, you're going to have to basically catch whatever's doing it. If you look at the leaves and turn them over, if it's caterpillar, caterpillars don't fly or run really fast, so the caterpillar is going to be there. You're going to be able to see him. There are beetles that chew on leaves, and they're a little bit harder to catch in the act because when you get close they might you know jump off or drop off onto the ground or possibly fly away but you're going to have to be kind of stealthy and catch whatever is chewing holes on the leaves because what you do to control caterpillars is different from what you do to control beetles or control anything else brown spots on the undersides of the lower leaves as the tree grows taller, it will lose the very, very bottom leaves. They're probably going to get some kind of fungal leaf spot and drop off over time. So as long as you don't have a lot of brown spots on it, or you're losing a lot of, if you're losing more leaves than what the tree is producing, that's bad because eventually you're going to run out of leaves. But if you're just losing the occasional leaf at the bottom, that's not anything to really worry about a whole lot. If you like, you can just take a bunch of pictures and email them to me, and that'll give me a better idea of what might be wrong with it. And I'll either show the pictures next week. Next week, we'll be back here again Thursday morning, and I think it's going to be just me. So send me pictures. That way I have something to talk about next week. Um, 
and we'll figure out what it is. But if you do have leaves that are getting chewed on, you're really going to have to try to catch whatever might be doing it. And if you do catch it and you take a picture of it and send it to me, uh, we can figure out what it is very, very easily. So there's my email if you want to shoot me some pictures. And Mike, one other thing that I wanted to bring up today and that comes up on a regular basis here is invasive plants. And I know we normally talk about invasive plants from the perspective of in somebody's yard. And most people have you know, reasonable sized yards. I know people that live out in the country. If you have 10 acres, it's a different situation. Mm -hmm. But people might have one lantana. I have a lantana. And it's growing out of the side of my uh, Sylvester palm tree. Obviously, a bird ate one of the berries off the invasive lantana and laid it in the tree and planted it. So it's, I think it's still out there as kind of an example. But a lot of people think that, you know, well, if I have an invasive plant or two or three in my yard, I keep them under control and they're never going to go anywhere else. And I'm, you know, it's just fine for me to have invasives. But I'm kind of interested. How does that impact you? Because you're, how many acres are you responsible for? So I'm responsible for roughly 1,100, 1,200 acres. Wow, that's, um, a lot, that's a lot of acres. It is a lot of acres. Um, I can't even like picture that. Like, you know what that. If, what if that I had my map, if I if my map was working. Yes. Um, you know what? So you don't have time to go out there and pluck up every lantana or baby <laughs> camper tree, or uh, china berry or whatever else pops up, do you? I do not. Um, see those 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 people who say I keep it under control. You know, I want to know which one of us controls the birds or the wind. And just because it's not popping up in your yard doesn't mean it's not showing up in on Mike's lands or other or or even worse, um, land that is not being managed. That's just, you know, empty, you know, yep. nobody's empty lots, um, undeveloped lots, I should say, that nobody's managing. Yeah. And then that creates issues for you. <laughs> That's right. So, so for me, invasive plant management is probably, um, I don't want to say it's the most time consuming part of my, of my job, but it is probably the most, um, <clears throat> taxing on my annual budget. Mm -hmm. Um, <clears throat> it's expensive to control invasive plants and invasive plants are detrimental to, our uh, natural Florida ecosystems. So, you know, like you've both uh, mentioned, you, you know, Joe homeowner could have a camphor tree in his yard and say, well, it's not going anywhere. It's not spreading, you know, there's not camphor trees popping up in my neighbor's yard and I don't have seedlings popping up in my yard. But they do. But, <laughs> but they do. Right, right. <laughs> Um, but you know, most folks, mm -hmm. um, they mow their yard regularly and, yeah, exactly. and so that's going to suppress anything in the, in the immediate vicinity. But, you know, you've got all those natural vectors out there that carry, um, you know, the seed source or, or whatever, uh, you know, manner that those, those plants, um, propagate themselves. You're having those dispersed all over, <clears throat> um through those mechanisms so you know birds like like bill mentioned you know carrying the seeds or dropping them and uh, you know the wind dispersing spores and i mean they can travel miles and miles um peck sink for example right uh carries all those seed sources from you know that eleven thousand acre um mm -hmm. basin <clears throat> to peck sink so we've got a, a big invasive plant management problem or invasive plant problem at at Peck Sink, um, and you have Kogan grass there. Yeah, yeah, we've got Kogan grass, we've got camphor trees, we've got skunk vine, Japanese climbing fern. Oh, we've got a lot. Um, but you know, at some point, those those depending where you are, right? Things become unmanaged, um, and and the the reason you know these plants are are invasive um 
is because they don't have something in this ecosystem, right, that controls them. So in their in their home, you know, territory or mm-hmm. or where they or, originate from, they may not be invasive because there is some kind of uh, animal or plant or, you know, natural uh, resource that controls them there and keeps them from out competing, you know, the other, the other vegetation or, or whatever. Um, but a great example is Chinsega Hill. Um, and a lot, a lot of, um, the plants there kind of started as, as what a lot of people do here, you know, uh, Hey, that's pretty. Let me, let me plant it and I'll just keep it in my little garden. Um, because that was a somebody's home and the different people, you know, in the late 1800s, early 1900s, that was the thing was to have exotic plants. Mm-hmm. And I know, like, yeah, one of them, like, wanted to experiment and create plants that didn't yeah. exist anywhere else. And, yeah. yeah. I mean, um, look at the water hyacinth. Okay. I, I think everybody knows what a water hyacinth is. Um they can be considered to be very beautiful. I mean, I, uh, I guess maybe knowing (laughs) the detriment that they have, I don't, I don't look at them that way so much, but you know, uh, in the 1800s, they were at the world's fair in in Louisiana and, um, they were, they were selling them. Mm -hmm. Somebody brought one over here to Florida and had it in their little water garden, their pond. And, uh, it overtook the pond because they they basically divide themselves and make more every couple of weeks. And um, next thing you know, their pond was was full of them, so they threw them out into the St. Johns River. And in a matter of a couple of years, the St. Johns River, almost the entire St. Johns River, was impassable. Mm-hmm. And at that point, um, you know, that was a major. Uh, you know, commerce route for, for mm-hmm. moving goods. I mean, that was one of the primary functions, primary ways that people got things uh, moved around back then was, was, you know, via boat on, on that river. And um, it played, it had a big impact on, on the economy. Um, so, uh, you know, the rest is kind of history there. I mean, that, that plant is not as detrimental as it used to be because of modern technology and, and, proper management um and and with invasive plants specifically i mean you can't just use one thing you've got to do integrated pest management you've got to look at all the different you know prevention education cultural uh chemical mechanical you know you've got to use all those all those means every tool in your toolbox um to take care of them um i'd like to Mm-hmm. <laughs> or, you know, I keep it contained or, you know, and I always tell people there's no such thing as a bad plant. You know, nature didn't create a bad plant, nor most likely did that plant, you know, sometimes over millennial, you know, animals may move them around on their fur or whatever. Mm-hmm. But as far as the moving plants where they, where nature never put them, that that's us. We did that. We're on purpose. Moving those things around. Right. Either on purpose in the um, nursery trade or just ship ballast, you know, the movement that we do. Mm -hmm. And you take that plant, as you said, away from its natural checks and balances, then you have the wrong plant in the wrong place. Yep. But Melinda asks here, we were talking about the uh, lantana. There are Florida friendly or native species of lantana and if you grow them they're just fine i mean that's a natural part of florida's environment the problem is the uh lantana camara Mm -hmm. that is native to brazil i think Mm -hmm. and that's the one that spreads like crazy because it flowers but it also sets little berries and birds like those little berries and birds will eat the berries and fly around and then deposit the berries far and wide and I know, um, where was it we were over on the coast? Or Mike, you pointed out once before a big patch of the invasive lantanas out there at Bayport, I think. Bayport, yeah. 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 
because um, Brittany was working on cleaning those up. Homeowners didn't plant them out there. They, they, some of these things, that's one of the components of an invasive plant is that it spreads like crazy. It spreads very, very well. Well, probably it, the homeowner it, in Hernando Beach, you know, yeah. did have it in their yard. If it's yeah. native range, it gets eaten by insects and animals and preyed upon by viruses and fungi. But here it just spreads like crazy. And then it costs all of us a huge amount of money controlling invasive plants. And yes, even the bad plants are going to attract butterflies and wildlife. I mean, somehow it gets spread around too. And so it has that good quality. Any lantana is going to attract a slew of butterflies. But you have to weigh out the damage that it's causing and the overall damage to the ecosystem and to our economy and to, you know. Yeah. So uh, interesting point uh, about uh, attracting butterflies. And I'll, I'll kind of come back to that in just a minute. But one thing I, I do want to mention um, in, in terms of managing conservation land um, or natural areas, um, you know, most, most managers think of an invasive plants as, as um, an issue of, of the ecosystem, and it is, but they, they affect much more than, than a natural ecosystem or, or plants and animals. Um, a couple of years ago, I was working on a, a Kogan grass removal project, and we were working with um, a professor from Florida A&M University, which, um, you know, some folks may not know, they Florida A&M University has a, a you know satellite area mm -hmm. here in Brooksville, and this this professor who was there, um, a researcher, he had been I think he was from South Africa or not South Africa, he was from somewhere in Africa, and he was doing some research there, and um, I learned that um, in some a lot of third world countries. Uh, where they don't have the the technology or or the means to control things like we do, um, and, and invasive plants basically, you know, are, are kind of become a matter of of life and death, right? So some of these villages where he was working, uh, kogan grass had invaded, um, you know, and I don't know how it got there, but it had invaded their kind of crop areas. And it was overtaking them and they depended on these gardens and these crops for their survival for their their primary food source um and so when i learned that that uh you know this kogan grass said um could could do that you know that was something i never thought about i just thought yeah, of it as invading an understory and in, in a sand hill or um you know it's all along the road the roadways but in in some areas i mean it can can really be detrimental um in a very much more significant way mm -hmm. yeah and not only crops though but pasturing and the livestock yeah you know yeah. it's taking away what the livestock need to eat mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah and does. so so uh you know kogan grass was one of the grasses that was um studied here here in brooksville at the um agriculture research station that uh the location that FAMU now owns um, mm -hmm. as a as forage for cattle, um, and um, you know they found that I think when it was very short, it it was you know the cows and livestock were able to eat it, but as it grew bigger and it always does, um, you know they, they couldn't digest it because there's too much silica in the uh, in the leaves, um, so it didn't proved to be an, an effective forage. Um, but going back to, uh, you know, you're talking about butterflies. Uh, this is a question uh, for Bill and, and Lily, I'd like to hear your um, thoughts on it as well. Um, <clears throat> I, I read a, um, a paper recently talking about milkweed. Okay, and so we've got our native milkweed and then there's obviously non-native milkweed. And there's kind of this debate whether non-native milkweed should be encouraged and propagated because it's not yet an issue, right, um, in terms of uh, being invasive, um, but should it be kept and propagated for monarch butterflies? 
because they're losing food source because native milkweed is is um you know being lost to you know habitat degradation and such so you know i guess my thoughts are you know every every plant that's not yet a problem that has the potential to become a problem will become one if if you it's let it. um but yeah so i just, I just kind of wanted to see if you guys had any input specifically to, to the non-native milkweed and and its um role for monarch butterflies you want me to go bill or you want to start i'll go first because i know university of florida has a plant assessment program where they look at different plants that are not native to Florida and they assess a, their potential for being invasive. And we have so many different plants in our yard that are not native to Florida. Citrus is not native to Florida. It came from China originally. Crepe myrtles came from Japan. Roses, maybe some roses are native to the US, but most of them aren't. But they're not invasive. They don't spread far and wide. They don't cause any kind of uh, ecosystem damage or, you know, extra cost. But they evaluate these plants on a regular basis because things change. So some things, uh, a couple examples, Moringa, which a lot of people are very interested in for health benefits. They assessed it and came to the conclusion that it's potentially invasive. So if people start to plant more and more of it, it will escape cultivation more and more and it will end up on Mike's land more and more. <laughs> it just hasn't happened yet. It has the potential for that. Um, uh, medical cannabis is technically potentially invasive. They're still, I think, evaluating that. So that's going to be an issue. How do we keep it contained and, you know, from popping up where it shouldn't? And I could see how the... I think um, there'll be very many complaints about that. <laughs> no, no, well, yeah, um, I'm sure people will be happy to go out there and help to keep it under control by hand. <laughs> mechanical control. Um, but the tropical milkweed does set viable seeds. If you have it growing in your yard. If you save the seeds and plant them, they'll come up. And I know a lot of people are growing a lot more milkweed for the monarch butterflies. And the easiest one to get a hold of now is the tropical milkweed. And I could see how it could become invasive as more and more people grow it. We have more plants going, more seeds blowing in the wind. That could potentially be a problem. The native milkweed is so much better, but it's very difficult to get it to germinate and come up. I know UF did have a research program going about finding ways to make it easier for people to germinate and grow their own native milkweed so if you want to help out the butterflies native milkweed is definitely the way to go but i understand that it could be difficult to get a hold of they're having more success especially with the tuberosa the orange milkweed um, that grows more in the dry areas too the two other commercially available are both uh perennis and i never remember the other name but they're both like uh for wet areas so that swamp, doesn't apply. I think there's two swamp milkweeds. Right. Now, as far as the tropical milkweed, the um, Asclepius persavica, which is what you're going to run to your big box store and buy. So, <laughs> first of all, I've seen it growing um, in uh, like roadsides where nobody put it. So I've seen its potential to be invasive. But you're going to say, well, that's not a bad thing because then it's helping the monarchs. Um, what they have found with tropical milkweed, we all want to help the monarchs. So we do everything we can to want to have more milkweed around. But you, as humans do, we usually don't quite get it right. <laughs> so, you know, we all plant this more milkweed. The most readily available is this tropical milkweed. It doesn't um, break down in the winter. It just continues to grow. So the least you can do if you have it is cut it back um, in uh, November and keep cutting it back. Don't let it grow again until April because what could happen is you might have so much of it or we in our neighborhood may 
it will confuse the monarchs into staying here instead of going further south or instead of heading on to Mexico. Not all of them go to Mexico. Some of them just go like South Florida um, and they'll freeze. <laughs> so you have not accomplished you know, anything that way. Also, um, there's a natural parasite on these monarchs. Is it OE? Is that what it is, Bill? Yeah, it's a microorganism. I'm not, right. it's, it's not a fungus, it's not a virus. I, I can't remember exactly. It's a microorganism. Yeah, it's on every monarch. It always has been. But what we are doing is not encouraging social distancing. And I know when they get to Mexico and all pile on top of each other, there's no social distancing. But as far as their journey goes, there should be. And we are encouraging them to hang around and pass this parasite more doesn't hurt the monarchs, but it destroys the caterpillars. So in trying to be so helpful, we've created other problems. And really the best answer is when if you want to be so helpful, then really try to get that na the native milkweeds that go down in the winter on, you know, naturally and, um, a lot of people they want to grow the or breed these monarchs to help out and they do it all year long like in their porch or something and on a well it was a bright beautiful warm day and the butterfly hatched so i let him out and it could be february and that might be a beautiful warm day and even if it stays warm what is growing for that butterfly to nectar on not much. So, you know, you got you should really limit the times that you do it to the warm months and don't panic. What what we recommend is of course having butterfly gardens, but also have them outside where nature just nature just happens and that means sometimes your nutrient rich, fat, juicy little caterpillars their destiny was to um, feed a baby bird. And you've got to accept it all. So that was a very long answer to your question. <laughs> very, uh, yeah. uh, good to, it's good to hear, you know, that information I didn't know about parasites and yeah. Uh, so very interesting. Yeah, we'll have to. I have a master gardener who is an expert on monarch butterflies, and I need to get a hold of him and have him on here one day, and we'll cover all the different issues and problems and pitfalls that you can run across when raising more caterpillars in your yard than would naturally be there. People start to have problems. <laughs> and, and Deb is absolutely right. I have heard horror stories from master gardeners where they even came to the, oh my gosh, more caterpillars than I have milkweed. They've eaten all the milkweed up. So they ran to the big box store brought milkweed, more milkweed home. They were all dead the next day, all the caterpillars. Yeah, and I know that I'm not, it might have been one of the big box stores said that they were not going Freezing to be out. Out milkweed yeah. anymore. I'm sure that they've backed off on that. But if you go to a big box store, you really, there's no way that you're going to be able to tell what it's been treated with. It might be a systemic insecticide or a contact insecticide. Mm -hmm. So it looks like we're getting really, really close to that time. Um, one more real quick, and it was perfect timing. Somebody contacted me on Facebook last night and I got a question I throw out to you guys there um, and this is about invasive plants and this is from Deanne who's asked us questions before through Facebook instant messenger she said, I'm interested in learning about invasive plants. I've only lived here a couple of years and realize how little I know. So what would you recommend to her to learn about invasive plants? So um, 
I guess there's a couple ways we could look at. It. I mean, if she's she's interested in invasive plants in the landscape. Um, you know, I would have her maybe look at one of um, <clears throat> the Florida Friendly Landscaping books. Um, but just in, in general, um, good solid information on invasive plants in Florida. Um, I would visit the uh, University of Florida's Center for Aquatic and Invasive Plants website. So they've, they've recently updated that website. Um, it's a little easier to search for plants that way. Um, but you can go through the plant list as they've got a, a full list there. Um, and you can click on each one. You can look at photos. You can get a description, line drawings. You can um, get, you know, brief uh kind of synopsis of, I think, where the plant is from, uh, how it impacts the ecosystem, methods of control, um, and and I think there's also like a comparison, like a look-alike mm -hmm. for native plants included in, in that as well. So that would be a great resource. I always send folks there. Um, and then also, uh, if you're looking like more specific to your region, you could probably look at the, um, <clears throat> the FISP website, which is uh, Florida invasive species, uh, I don't let me look, let me look that up real quick. <laughs> I don't remember you know, it used to be Florida exotic. Yeah. Florida Exotic Pest Plant Council, and now it's it's FISP now, F-I-S-P. Uh, oh, is it? It's oh, not Flepsy changed their name? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. okay. Um, we like acronyms. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So. And you would um, probably still find it online if you put in. Yes, you would. Yeah. Yeah. Council. You'll be surprised. There's like lots of plants on their yeah. list. Florida Exotic. <laughs> And if you're curious about a specific plant and you know what the plant is, if you look up the University of Florida Invasive Plant Assessment, they have a big database because you may not realize there's a lot of plants that if you look it up, it's invasive in South Florida, it's potentially invasive in Central Florida, and it's not a problem in North Florida because it's something that's so tropical, it always gets frozen back and killed in North Florida. So it's never going to spread very far, but it, it may be something that's a huge problem down in South Florida and Miami and Homestead because it never freezes down there. So you have and, to keep um, that in mind also. We've also made classes. If you look at um, Hernando County Government YouTube, I believe I have a class called This, Not That. Mike reminded me when um, you know I'm making suggestions for native or Florida friendly plants as compared to this invasive exotic that has similar features, you know, for what you're looking for. Also, if it's not on the YouTube, I know it's on my Facebook page, Hernando FFL program at Facebook, there is seductive invaders. And that's what I, you know, talk about where you're in love with these plants um, and the reasons why, you know, because they're so pretty or they attract wildlife or they don't take any maintenance. Um, but, you know, the problems that they cause and um, better suggestions. Too. Yeah. Or the best thing you do is just tune into all of our classes. Yeah. <laughs> learn all about invasive plants and everything else too. So if you go to Hernando extension, all one word.com, you're going to see a full listing of all of our upcoming classes. As soon as we schedule them and get a date and details, we put it on Facebook. There's a link to our um, Facebook page also, Hernando Extension. Hernando EXT is the short name. And that way you can follow everything that we're doing. We do invasive plants on it. We do everything, don't we? We cover it all. Let me I'm see. liking I'm, Deb today, Bill. I can fit up there all at once. I'm liking Deb today. <laughs> he says, wonderful classes by Lily, and Bill's pretty good, too. <laughs> so. 
So Here, let me Bill, that other that other one FISP is Florida Invasive Species Partnership. So uh Flepsy's still active. Okay. Um, Flepsy is like a watchdog group. They have no power yeah. or control. They're just like, we're watching you, and then they alert the authorities if something, you know, like you really should be watching this one. Yeah. But yeah. FISP, they're pretty good because you can learn um, every region has uh, a CISMA, which is a cooperative um, invasive species management area. And it's primarily for land, you know, uh, land managers, but the general public can get involved as well and, and they can help out. Um, so our, our local CISMA is the Nature Coast CISMA. And then, um, you know, private landowners can, they can get assistance in controlling invasive plants, uh, you know, through certain channels that, and that way. So thanks for sharing that link. Yeah, and education's the most important thing, especially for homeowners, so that you know, you know, when something pops up in your yard, if it's invasive, just pull it out. Yep. Yep. That's the best. <laughs> Try to stay ahead. Any other questions here? Last moment burning questions. Like I said, I'll be back next Thursday, but Lily won't be here with us. And well, Mike and I will probably be in the same meeting <laughs> while you're doing this. We we are groundwater guardians. I'm very mythical. Oh. <laughs> yes. Yes, I know my days are filled with meetings. Oh, yeah. Two meetings now, back to back to back. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, hey everyone, thank you so much for tuning in. Um, and if you have a question, you know, and it's not a Thursday morning, feel free to contact one of us send us an email, give us a call, call the office. We are open and we're here to answer your questions. So with that, thank you very much, everybody. And I will see you again next week. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me on today. Yeah, thank was, you, Mike. Thank you so great, much. For your very interesting.